0: Are you still waiting for your wage tax refund from Cleveland because you didn't work there? So am I. So is Laura. We have a story about what is taking so long for this inexcusable holding hostage of our cash. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. And Laura, it's getting ridiculous that we don't have our (laughs) refunds back. Cleveland took our money really illegally because we weren't there, and now they will not give it back to us.
1: Yeah, I was talking to my husband. I was like, when did we file this? He was like, I think around St. Patrick's Day. And you're like, okay, this is absolutely ridiculous. I'd like my money back now, please. I mean, maybe they figure everybody's student loans are going to be forgiven, so they don't need the money.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. Let's get to it. More than four months after tax day, more than half of the people who paid wage taxes to Cleveland, even though they worked from home, are still waiting for the refunds. Layla, why the long delay? And it sure looks like, from what we reported that they are only paying the lower amounts first. And anybody that has more than a thousand bucks coming is being held hostage, which I don't even get how you could explain that. Take us through what we've reported. So they say the
2: slower pace of refunds earlier in the year relates to the Cleveland Central Collection Agency's work as as a regional tax collector that serves numerous cities other than Cleveland, and that the complexities of that work draw resources away from issuing tax refunds because they have several other municipalities that they have to distribute funds to on a regular basis. Uh, they say tax collection agencies for cities that only handle refunds for their own workers and residents don't have to juggle so much at once. It's such a bad excuse, right? Uh, so, so once the bulk of that work was complete uh, post tax filing season, the the CCA shifted more of its attention and resources to processing returns. So they have seen a recent uptick in the numbers of refunds that they've been able to process. There. Get this, though, though. They're just nearing the halfway mark of the estimated 5,000 people who requested refunds for 2021. They've now paid out 2,330 refunds to people totaling $3.4 million. That's up significantly, though, from returns that were processed during the first half of the year. As of the first week of July, the tax agency had processed just 1,260 re- requests, or about 25% of those submitted, which was just $1.7 million. They're really lagging behind Columbus, Cincinnati, and Akron. Um right. So it's bad. It,
0: look, it it's inexcusable. Look, th- here's the problem they have. I don't want to work in Cleveland. I, we're, we're considering having a downtown office. I don't want to work out of it because this is a hassle. We're not five days a week. So every year that we have in Cleveland, we're going to have to seek refunds, wait forever to get the money. I had to pay my own municipality the full bill of my income taxes because I worked here every day last year so in that intervening period i'm out a lot of money Mm -hmm. because i'm not getting my refund from cleveland they're 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 trying to get people and companies to say hey please come back and work downtown and i i know that workers everywhere are saying i don't want to because dealing with you is way too big a hassle i'd rather work in a suburb deal with rita because rita works at the snap of the fingers i am troubled it does look like they have taken the smallest refunds first. And there is no justification for that other than that they want to collect interest on the money as long as possible. That's not right. They've already had it for all of last year. Now they're going to have it for most of this year and and getting interest on it that we don't get. I I just this is really unforgivable and I I know cuz I talked to other People that are making decisions about where to have their offices—they're—they're they're hearing it from their workers. I don't want to deal with Cleveland. I don't want to—I don't want to have to go through this confusing process every year. I mean, let's face it—the forms you fill out to get this back could not be more confusing. Oh, I was just going well, to say, you went right. through it.
1: Right. And we had to get, I think, something notarized from our company saying we didn't work there. And it was very confusing whether you checked like that you worked less than I think 10 days is the limit. I, I might be fuzzy on that one. Or if you didn't work at all, or if your company was remote, and you had to put everything together and send it in by mail. I mean, they do not make this easy.
0: Well, and Justin Bibb promised to modernize City Hall. He, this is this is really unforgivable. It is four and a half months now past tax day. That is way too long to be claiming they're doing their best. And it, so I I think the penalty they'll pay is people are going to say, Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be in Cleveland at all. You get you won't get to w- withhold any of my money. Uh, I'll work in a suburb. One of our suburban offices paid to the suburb and. I'm done with Cleveland, which is a disaster for downtown. And they're not even thinking of those ramifications going for the short-term gains. Anyway, check out the story. It's on cleveland.com. But this is one of the failures so far of this young administration. It's today in Ohio. Democrat Tim Ryan, running for the U.S. Senate in Ohio, made headlines this week by opposing Joe Biden's plan to forgive some student loan debt. Does it turn out that Ryan is a waffler, Lisa?
3: Well, yes, um, but we have to go back a couple of years to find that waffle. Um, Ryan was the only Democrat from the Ohio uh, congressional delegation to criticize Biden's loan forgiveness plan. Um, he said that waiving debt of people on the road to success sends the wrong message to Ohioans without degrees who are working hard to keep food on the table. He instead proposed other things. He wants across-the-board tax cuts for middle-class and working families, universal Universal community college, canceling medical debt, and then uh, new options for refinancing student loan debt. But he sang a slightly different tune back in 2021 in an interview with reporters before his Senate campaign uh, began. He said that canceling student loan debt would be great for people and families who have that debt, including his own family. But he says we need broader relief for those who don't go to college. So he was already signaling, I think, a change of heart there. He also su- uh, expressed support for wiping out debt in a 2020 CNN interview when he was running as the Democratic presidential nominee. He said that wiping the debt of six figure earners this time around, he says, we're wiping out the debts of fixed six figure earners. And he says that just goes too far. Just to explain that, you know, people earning, I think, $125,000 get $10,000 in debt forgiveness. Those on Pell Grants, get $20,000 debt forgiveness.
0: Well, and let's let's put it in the perspective. It's up to $125,000. There's a whole lot of people that are making forty-five dollars and $50,000 that have enormous college loan debt that'll be helped by this. It's amazing to me how everybody has immediately leapt to one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, because because the bulk of people are not making that; they're making far less. And when you have big college debt, when you're making forty-five thousand a year, it's a much bigger chunk of your uh, income to pay. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised that he didn't just confront this face on instead of letting it come out as a follow-up story. And why not come out and say, you know, two years ago I said I like this idea in addition to other things, but two years later I really think we need to be working to help everybody and, and that this is too specific. Instead, he, he set himself up for a gotcha, which this is, it's a gotcha. Oh, you're waffling. This isn't what you said two years ago. And it'll allow his opponent in the Senate race to call him a waffler. Dumb move by Tim Ryan. It's today in Ohio. Do we have greater clarity this week on exactly who were the people the government has said conspired with First Energy on House Bill 6? Until now, the people who aren't charged have been a little bit fuzzy in the documents, Laura. But we have a new deposition that pretty much says who it is the government is identifying.
1: I mean, honestly, I don't think it's been very fuzzy. We we keep talking about the same couple of people. So, and remember when federal judge John Adams demanded attorneys in March reveal who paid the bribes? This is who they named then, but this is in a deposition. It's former CEO Chuck Jones and chief lobbyist Michael Dowling From First Energy, also former House Speaker Larry Householder and former PCO chair Sam Randazzo. Same four guys we keep talking about. It's been like two and a half years now. And this is part of a civil lawsuit, which actually goes beyond what First Energy admitted last year as part of their deferred prosecution agreement with federal prosecutors, where they basically said, yes, 60 million dollars in bribes.
0: Yeah, but in the deferred prosecution agreement, they left it a little bit unclear about right. who exactly was conspiring to violate whatever it is the wire transfer act or w- or whatever the the thing is and in this deposition when when the f- the official was asked straight out she said, yeah, it's pretty clear that it's these guys. And yep, again, but- it raises a question. Okay, if it's these guys, why aren't they indicted?
1: Right. And they so First Energy sent Tracy Ashton. She's their first their first energy assistant controller, and there were a whole lot of questions she could not answer. I think think something like a hundred question she said she she couldn't answer that she, and the judge the magistrate said she was inadequately prepared for the deposition because and she didn't review relevant facts prior to it so it's like first energy says they're cooperating but then they send this person to take a deposition <laughs> who obviously doesn't know everything and doesn't have the Control to be able to say everything that's happening. So they've asked for the next time they do this to get somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. But I would like to point out that this deposition transcript was made public last week through a filing submitted to the PUCO by the Office of the Consumer Council, sorry, the Ohio Consumers Council, which is a state utility consumer watchdog. Okay, so another bunch of information we got through the PUCO that is now saying, okay, we're going to back off our investigations.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that they say, we need to talk to somebody that can answer questions, and they send the equivalent of the the valet parking guy out front to come (laughs) in I don't know. I don't know. Beats me. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. My reading of the document says, but I don't know. And you can understand why a judge loses patience with that. It is, like you said, further evidence. First Energy is trying to say, hey, we're good now. We got rid of the bad guys. We're doing everything right. But they are doing everything they can you, to stop this from proceeding.
1: And you know, it's funny. I went to a Guardians game on Friday and I was at Tennis in the Land on Monday. And both venues had prominent advertisements from Energy Harbor, right? And it's like this pretty little picture like, and it's blue and it makes you think of the lake. And I'm like, that, I'm like, that is the first Energy spinoff that we're all still paying our taxpayer money paid for. And now their advertising is this lovely, you know, do good citizen company.
0: So. Uh, credit to Jerry McPelzer because he he spotted this in the in the deposition and understood the importance of it. It's a good story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What did the public have to say when people finally had the chance to offer their thoughts to elected county officials of Cuyahoga on their proposal to build a new jail on a site? contaminated by cancer-causing chemicals. Layla, this went a little bit differently than I thought. They don't want to build a new jail at all. Yeah.
2: Well, first, uh, you know, I want to say that uh, at this public hearing, Armin Budish, county executive, did not attend, uh, though his chief of staff, Bill Mason, was in attendance along with other public work staff. No county council members were there. But from the steering committee that, that has been making the decisions about the jail, there there was the sheriff, Stephen Hammett. Prosecutor Mike O'Malley was there. Public defender Colin Sweeney and Common Pleas Administrative Judge Brennan Sheehan. They were all there.
0: But, 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 but hold on a minute, too, because O'Malley, Sweeney, and Sheehan— are the three that have been really the most vocal about building on a toxic site. So it's not surprising they went because they've been the most responsive to this. It's shocking to me that the county council, which has been ramming this through and advertised we're going to have this hearing, we got all got the press releases, didn't even have the decency to face the music mm. with an angry electorate that doesn't want to go. How, how can you claim you're t- tapped into what people are thinking if you won't even go and sit across from them and hear them.
2: Yep. Uh, yep. And there were about a hundred people who showed up to this hearing last night and, and spoke out against the jail. Largely, they were they were given it seems as much time as they needed to get through everyone who wanted to speak, which amounted to about an hour and a half. And they asked dozens of questions about why a new jail is the best use of half a billion public dollars, how a new building will fix some of the inhumane conditions that they said stemmed from leadership and staffing problems rather than structural concerns of the building, and and what the long-term ramifications may be if if the mitigation systems meant to protect the community from toxins on the site were to fail. And not that Any of those questions were answered in real time. Uh, Ken Dowell, the consultant hired to moderate the community meeting, promised that all the questions would be shared eventually with county council and the 12 member Justice Center's executive steering committee before any decisions are made about the jail. But like I said, county council, they weren't there to hear it. And you know, who knows? Could you just be like, oh, yes, uh, thanks for your input, and uh, we will take it under advisement. Um, Many of the people in attendance agreed that the conditions at the current jail are completely inhumane and unacceptable, but they don't want to see a new jail built on a toxic dump site or otherwise. They they instead, a lot of them expressed that they want to see community solutions that stem the need for mass incarceration in the first place. You know, that's kind of where a lot of people were coming from.
0: What was impressive, though, these were people who were paying attention because they said, look, a a new jail doesn't correct all the sins of this administration. (laughs) You're running a terrible jail. The administration of this jail is a disaster. You need to fix that before we do anything else. And let's face it, for 45 years, the jail wasn't a place like this. It's only been under Armand Budish that this is turned into such a horrible, horrible place. So it was impressive. I did not expect that. I thought this was going to be, are you kidding me? You're going to put inmates sleeping on top of benzene laden soil. How cuckoo are you guys? And there was that, but it was more, you guys are incompetent. Figure out how to run the jail. And then let's talk about what our needs are. I I am though, I, I, you know, British and the council. They're forcing this down the public's throats. We have reported over and over again on this. We're hearing from hundreds of people that are dead set against it, and they don't even have the decency to show up. You know, there's an HBO show on uh, Hurricane Katrina called Tremay. where in one of the episodes they had a great song. Uh, that they put together to to embarrass public officials. I think it was called shame, shame, shame. We had to pull that back, reword it, and apply it to these guys for the shame of not having the decency to show up. Did really you- bad. I did didn't see that coming
2: did you see uh, so within caitlin's story there's this photo she took of this poster that they had you know giant poster. <laughs> <laughs> did you see it so it has all yeah. these you know they wanted people to participate in in marking what they thought were the priorities for a new building and they have all these areas that you know buildings should make a statement landscape used as a visual buffer you know all these priority areas that they for the for the new facility and they wanted people to put a sticker under the ones that they want to see as a priority and somebody put a giant piece of paper kind of paper clip to the side that says no new jail and everyone put their stickers on that yeah
0: i know it was
2: and it's such a statement it's amazing it
0: it was yeah i know but nobody who's in a decision making ability because ultimately the county council and the executive make this decision were there although i should say chris ronane a candidate for county executive was there Did speak up. So he's basically weighed in and said, hold on, this is a bad idea. Um, Good stuff. I I just, again, didn't see it coming. I thought they would have the basic decency to stand there and look their constituents in the eyes. But I guess they don't like being yelled at. It's today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County officials keep telling us they have a keen understanding of the safety of county bridges. For the second time in months, though, they just discovered one that is way more deteriorated than they thought. Which one is it? And how can we have any confidence, Lisa, in these folks? They tell us the bridges are all good. They're on top of it. Twice now, it's like, uh oh, we better close this down for the long term. This could fall in.
3: But to be fair, sometimes you can't see these things until you start the project, which is exactly what happened here. The renovation of the Cedar Point Road Bridge in the Metro Park's Rocky River Reservation will take several months longer because they found serious deterioration after the project began in some of the steel beams that are supporting this span. But here's the thing. This bridge is 93 years old. It's uh, kind of, you know, under the aegis of the Ohio Preservation office because of its historic designation. So there were plans to reuse some of these original steel beams to maintain the historic integrity of the bridge. But they discovered that these beams are not worth saving and they really need to put some new ones in interesting this bridge you know it's old it's almost 100 years old it's the earliest surviving type of bridge in ohio and it has these beautiful aesthetics it's got these local sandstone railings and everything but now because of these beams having to be replaced The bridge will now remain closed until next summer. That's six months beyond the original deadline. This is a common route from people that go to NASA Glenn Research Center, getting to North Olmsted and adjacent communities. Work began in this last July, so it's been closed for a year since then. It's a $3 million project and it was delayed by the Union Industrial Contractors Group, which is redoing the bridge. I said, oh, there's no way we can save these beams
0: you know you said something though that 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 does raise an issue they're telling us it's all fine you know, that we got a handle on this, but, and you're saying, well, but they can't find out how bad it is until they open it up. Doesn't that speak to an enormous flaw in our inspection process? (laughs) And you can't have both. You can't say it's all fine. Trust us. The bridges are safe. And then on the other hand say, yeah, but we really don't know what's going on until we start to look one of those, those things should change. They should either have some sort of system for regularly at intervals doing a deeper inspection than they're doing, or they should stop telling us that it's safe and just say, hey, when you're on the bridges, <laughs> it's you're you're taking a risk.
3: Well, and I think we did a story about that. I think there, you know, I think we talked about it on the podcast that they need to because there was another bridge. It had the same issue. They found this, you know, bad rebar when they started to take away the concrete. But yeah, I think they were talking about like some kind of kind of sonar or something to look at a bridge so you can see the underlying structure.
0: Yeah, I I just it's really I think it should shake confidence a little bit that this has happened twice in short order. And, you know, we have salty roads and all of the deteriorating forces that attack the steel and bridges, so it's not surprising that some are in bad shape. It's today in Ohio. We covered an interesting meeting of residents of a Cleveland neighborhood and Cleveland officials to talk about crime, and there was a lot of nuance in the conversation, Laura. It was a real nice story that John Tucker put together about the conflicts that exist in dealing with crime in Cleveland. What was it about?
1: Yeah, dozens of residents came to this meeting, which was organized by Councilwoman Jasmine Santana, and it was about safety and gun violence. She said that safety worries are the number one reason that people are calling her office this year. And this was a call to action. So Mayor Justin Bibb, Public Safety Director Carrie Howard, and Police Chief Wayne Drummond were all there, um, about 100 people uh, at the Pivot Center for the Arts on West 25th. And they, what was really weighing on their mind was there's 14-year-old girl named Daviana Wright was fatally shot by a 15-year-old boy on Tuesday morning. I mean, so that was the day before this meeting. And while Howard and Drummond outlined several initiatives, like a, a violent crime reduction task force, the program they've targeting illegal dirt bikes, efforts to address 911 callers, basically they said there should be more, the, the residents said. And they, they said that we want to be able to trust the police department and we don't always feel that way.
0: This wasn't an angry shouting match. This was people that are that are bothered by what's going on with crime. They're bothered by the lack of a stronger relationship with police. And then on the other side, there was an acknowledgement. I mean, the city, of course, saying, "Hey, we're trying. We're trying our best." But I loved Carrie Howard, the public safety director, when he said, "You know, look, before I." got involved in the administration. I was one of you. So I know what you're talking mm-hmm. about with the mm-hmm. police. That was a great acknowledgement. I mean, I, if I'm sitting in that audience, I'm going to feel like, wow, there's somebody in this administration that gets it.
1: Yeah, I think so. And and there was only one kind of tiff between the residents and the police department. And that was, we talked about all, earlier on this podcast this week, Anton Tolbert, who sued the police in the city over openly carrying a firearm in the streets. And he says that there should be more done, that um, this kind of animosity hasn't developed out of thin air. So but they talked about the consent decree. They talked about their efforts. And it did feel like everybody's on the same page and that they want to address the violence.
0: This was organized by Councilwoman Jasmine Santana, right?
1: Yes, exactly. I
0: I, got to give her real credit for for setting up a situation for a healthy conversation. If we had more of these kinds of conversations in Cleveland, I think everybody'd be better ahead. And, you know, you got to give a tip of the hat to the administration for participating in it in good faith.
1: Right. Unlike the jail story we just talked about, they all showed
0: (laughs) up. Boy, I wish I'd have thought of that. That's a good line. Shame, shame, shame. (laughs) Shame. It's today in Ohio. Lee Weingart, a Republican candidate for Cuyahoga County Executive, has spent months telling voters he would freeze property tax bills for people over 60. By the way, he calls them seniors if they're over 60. Shame, shame, shame. They're not seniors at 60. Speaking as a 60. 60. Anyway, and they also have to have, to have household incomes under 50000 We did some checking, and it sounds like he is way overstating what a county executive has the power to do. And, Layla, I want to point out if people live in Cayuga County and subscribe to either the plain deal or cleveland.com, this is the kind of watchdog reporting their money supports.
2: Yes. And uh, so, so, Weingart has been saying when I am county executive, we will freeze the property tax bills for seniors on fixed incomes. And in fact, despite the fact that our, our watchdog reporting illuminates this, our, our listeners might have caught this exact commercial at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> I should point that out because we have been <laughs> running it. So <laughs> um, his his tax relief plan... Pledges to help homeowners over the age of 60 and and with an annual household income below $50,000 by resetting the taxable value of their homes to pre-2021 rates and freezing that value until the home sells or is otherwise transferred. Those owners who have also lived in their homes for at least 20 years could have their taxable value reset to 20% below the pre 2021 level until the home sells or otherwise transfers. So the problem is, even as county executive, he wouldn't have the power to freeze property taxes for anyone. (laughs) Caitlin Durbin reached out to the Ohio Department of Taxation to learn more about how a proposal like this might work. And she learned that this kind of tax relief would require an act of the General Assembly. So it's not something that's within the power of the county executive. Weingart said he he does think that he would have the authority to lower property taxes by altering the appraisal rates for certain qualifying groups. Yeah,
0: not a chance. We can't do that. <laughs> he's he's completely wrong on that.
2: But but if not, you know, he he said he's already come up with a plan B and he has asked state representative Tom Patton to draft legislation that would grant authority to counties with charter forms of governments and populations over a million dollar, or a million people, which is only Cayuga County, really to freeze property values for certain demographics. So that's only us. Patton said he has tried and failed to pass similar statewide legislation before, so he's really interested in trying again, this time using Kaiga County as a pilot. So
0: I don't know. I I do want to chill on this a little bit because Weingart has clearly picked up on something that we're hearing a lot of from people. They're weary of tax increases. You know, right now, Buddhist and the council want to perpetually raise the sales tax, and nobody wants that. you know, Weingart has said if they do that, he's going to force it into the ballot where it'll fail. So, so he's trying to figure out a way to tax relief, and he's you know, bad on him for not having a fully thought out plan for how he would do what he wants to do. Because when he first started talking about it, he was just going to do it. Then we started questioning him and he goes, well, I'll I'll reduce their appraisals. And that's like major red flags. You can't do that. The appraisal Mm -hmm. system is sacrosanct. You cannot mess with that. And it's unfair. But I do think because he's sensing this, you know, a county executive does have the bully pulpit. And let's face it, we know Lee Weingart has gotten stuff through the legislature before. He's the guy that got us the (laughs) MedMart.
2: Yeah, right. But so I wonder
1: what schools would think of this, because, I mean, we depend on property taxes to fund schools. And and when the value of your house goes up, the property taxes go up in general, too. Right. So this would this would hurt schools. Well, If it ever went through.
0: He his argument is it would actually help schools because seniors, he says, votes against school taxes because they're fixed incomes. So if they knew they'd get relief, they might be more likely to push it. He also says a 0.4 reduction in budgets is something they can cope with. And I do think taxpayers largely agree with him that the budgets are bloated again. You know, we've got tax increases. I mean, name one time when we've reduced taxes. The taxes are always going up. And so uh, I think he's tapped into something and he probably can find a way to do this because he's a Republican who'd be working with the Republican legislature. He just hasn't figured it out. I think we've done more work to figure it out than he has. So good story by Caitlin Durbin. It's on cleveland.com. And we're, we're out of time with multiple things we haven't talked about. It's been a good discussion today on Today in Ohio. So thank you, Lisa, Laura, and Layla. I hope you all have a pleasant weekend. Thanks to everybody who listens. Come on back Monday. We'll have more to talk about.